The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be continuing our series this morning in Matthew's Gospel, and we reach the Sermon on the Mount. We are not going to exhaust all the truth that there is in the Sermon on the Mount. I've been thinking about it carefully for 13 years, and I still have not exhausted all that God wants to do in my life through these three chapters. This is powerful stuff, folks. It's the kind of stuff that will change you from within. And that's been my prayer all week, that the Sermon on the Mount, as we begin to preach through it and begin to consider it today, will change First Baptist Church from inside. All my life I've been attracted to mountains. There's something about mountains that just excites me. Uh, When I was a child, I used to climb in the White Mountains in New Hampshire with my dad. It was one of our outings that we would make every year. We'd climb up Mount Washington or Mount Adams. And my favorite part would be late in the day, we'd have pitched our tent just below tree line, and we'd go above the tree line and look down and see all the surrounding countryside. We'd see the Kankamongas Highway, and we'd see the river that flows down through there. If it was fall, you could see just rolling hills of oranges and reds. You could see the sunset. Because what you get for all your labor as you're climbing up the mountain is you get perspective. You're able to look down and see things that otherwise you would never be able to see. And Jesus invites us now as his disciples to come up on the mountain with him and get perspective. But it's not on the terrain that surrounds us. It's on the terrain of the human character. What does God love in a human heart? That's what we get out of the Sermon on the Mount. That's what we're going to see. The Sermon on the Mount has challenged Christians for generations, for hundreds of years. I remember reading recently about King Henry VIII's personal physician, Thomas Lineker. He decided that he was going to change his profession. He was not going to be the personal physician of the king anymore, so he gave up his position in court, and he began training for the ministry, and he was ordained in 1520. And he began reading the New Testament in Greek, He was a scholar, read it carefully for the first time. He'd never seen it before. But when he came to these three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he became so challenged, so frustrated, that he tossed the book away and said, if this is the gospel, then none of us are Christians. That was the conclusion he came to. 400 years later, another physician to the King of England, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a man who turned his back on his ministry as a physician and went into the ministry as a preacher of the Word, one of the greatest preachers God has ever put on this planet, came to a similar conclusion. He said, The Sermon on the Mount crushes me to the ground again and again. But after the crushing is over, it raises me up. That's the beauty, the perfection, the power of the Sermon on the Mount. When I was first starting as an engineer, I worked in something called a wet metallization lab. Now, some of you perhaps aren't familiar with that. I wasn't that familiar with it. Still, really, am not that familiar with it. But I know it's used in making semiconductors. And what it does is it coats things with gold or with some other metal, a little bit at a time, a layer at a time. Well, the woman who was the technician asked me if I had anything that I wanted coated with gold. At the time, I had a medallion I wore around my neck. I said, here, can you coat this? And she said, sure. So she put it in there. It was in there for a little while, and it came out glistening, shining with gold. It was just beautiful. And I said, wow, I really thank you for doing that. Are you sure this is okay? 
I mean, this is kind of expensive. She said, it's not as expensive as you think. Over the next week, I saw what she meant, as almost all the gold had rubbed off on my shirt or on my chest. It was all gone. <laughs> then I realized I didn't owe her that great a debt of gratitude. As I look at Christianity today in America, I feel like it's like that. A thin layer of gold over unregenerate hearts, people who have never been changed by the gospel. I think there's all kinds of polls that say that, I don't know how many people, 80% claim to be born again, and yet we see this decaying spiral in our society. How is it possible? I think these three chapters hold some of the answer for us. These three chapters. Now, in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament times, there were three important people who challenged Israel to lead godly lives. The three people were the prophet, the priest, and the king. Now, taking them backwards, Matthew has been at pains from the beginning of this gospel, gospel to pre present Jesus as the king of Israel. You remember in Matthew chapter 1, he begins with a genealogy which proves that Jesus Christ fulfills the prophecies and that he is the king who was prophesied. He is our king. Now, we, rightly so, focus as believers in Jesus Christ on Jesus' ministry as our priest. He offered his body as a sacrifice on the cross, poured out his lifeblood to take away our sin, to stand in the way of God's wrath so that we might not have to suffer judgment. On the third day, he was raised again. He presented his blood spiritually as our atoning sacrifice. Jesus is our priest. But I think of the three, we neglect the ministry of Jesus as our prophet. We don't think carefully about the words he spoke and how they are meant to transform our lives. We don't listen to his sermons. We ought to let Jesus preach to us. We ought to let him talk to us and tell us what we are to think, how we are to feel, on what basis we're going to be judged. And you get nowhere in all the Gospels a larger chunk of Jesus' preaching than you do here in Matthews 5, 6, and 7. Now, we have received a heritage of great preaching, haven't we? 20th century, we look to Billy Graham, Southern Baptist preacher. He's spoken through technology, through satellites, through, through air travel to more people than any preacher in the history of the church. In the 19th century, there was Charles Spurgeon, who before he was 20 years old was preaching to tens of thousands in London and transforming lives all over that country. In the 18th century, we saw George Whitfield, who, as I talked to the new members class earlier, crossed the Atlantic Ocean 13 times in a sailing vessel. Can you believe that? Took his life into his hands to preach the gospel on both sides of the Atlantic. Was the human instrument of bringing in the Great Awakening, one of the greatest preachers of all time. 17th century saw a Baptist preacher named John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, the book that has been translated out of English and into other languages more than any other book in the history of the English language. John Bunyan, a powerful preacher, just a simple man. You know, one of the most important Puritan theologians of the time, John Owen, was talking to the king about John Bunyan. John Bunyan was just a blue-collar worker, everyday guy, great preacher. And the king said, oh, he's just a tinker, he just works with his hands. And the godly John Owen said, would it please the king, I would tell you this, I would trade all my learning for just a fraction of that man's power in the pulpit. That was John Bunyan. And in the 16th century, we saw Martin Luther, who transformed all of history by his preaching. But I tell you that there is a preacher here today who's greater than Billy Graham, greater than Charles Spurgeon, greater than George Whitefield, greater than John Bunyan, greater than Martin Luther, or all of them put together. And that is Jesus Christ, the greatest preacher of all time. I get the image here of King Solomon in all his royal robes. Can you picture him, Solomon, coming into his, into his kingly court? 
and there'd be people from all different lands who had come to hear his wisdom. Solomon's reputation had gotten around. He could answer any question you put to him, questions about botany or about different kinds of, of animals, about science and technology. He could answer anything because of the special gift of wisdom that God had given him. So imagine Solomon coming in at the appointed hour, turning around and sitting down on his throne and holding court. And then the Queen of the South coming and testing him with difficult questions. And she was astonished at his wisdom. Jesus talked about that story, do you remember? He said the Queen of the South came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now one greater than Solomon is here, said Jesus, referring to himself. Jesus was the greatest preacher that ever lived. There's a story of Jesus' enemies... They sent some temple police to go arrest him. Do you remember this story in John 7? So the temple police went to haul him in. They were under orders. They were going to arrest him and they were going to try Jesus for blasphemy. They went and listened for a while and they came back empty-handed. Do you know why? They said, why didn't you bring him in? They said, we've never heard anyone speak like this man. No one has ever spoken the way this man spoke. It's still true today. Jesus is the greatest preacher that ever lived. We need to listen to the Sermon on the Mount as from the greatest preacher who ever lived, God's messenger, God's prophet. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. The son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being and sustains all things by his powerful word. He's the one who's going to preach to us today. And we need to listen to that message. I think never before in all church history have we needed to listen to the Sermon on the Mount as we do today. And why? It's because of that thin veneer that I see in, in my heart and in Christianity as a whole. I don't want that kind of faith in Christ. I want one that reaches deep to my heart. Don't you? Don't you want a genuine faith in Jesus Christ? Listen to the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to what he has to say. The Sermon on the Mount drives us to Jesus Christ for the new birth. It points us Two, the need that we have for faith in Jesus Christ more than any other passage of Scripture. When you go through the precepts of the Sermon on the Mount, if you make it through unscathed, then I fear for your soul. If you get through and you say, check, check, I can do that, check, yep, that's me, right on down the line, then I fear for your soul. You're self-deluded. I remember I used to do telephone evangelism up in Massachusetts. That's in lieu of door-to-door. -door. They don't like you going door-to-door -door in Massachusetts. But they'll tell you anything over the phone. They'll tell you their marriage struggles. They'll tell you anything because it's somewhat impersonal. They're a little bit safe. And so they begin. And I used to talk to people about, about faith in Christ. And this one woman told me, she said, I just try to live by the Sermon on the Mount. I said, how are you doing? She said, very well. <laughs> I said, have you read the Sermon on the Mount? She said, oh, yes. <laughs> Matthew 5.48, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Hmm. Check. Do you meet that test? Are you perfect as the heavenly Father is perfect? Well, no one's perfect as the heavenly Father is perfect. Amen. Let's go back to the beginning. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You want to come into the kingdom of heaven? You don't come in as a rich man. You come in as a beggar. You come in saying, I can't do this. This isn't me. That's how it all starts. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then you begin to mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Why are you mourning? You're mourning because of sin. You're broken over it. It's not so much that God is going to comfort you in the loss of a loved one. He does that, but that's not what this is about. This is about mourning over sin. It's mourning because you're poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. 
Blessed are the pure in spirit, pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the light of the salt of the, of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people put a lamp under a bowl after they light it. Instead, they put it up on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father who is in heaven. Now, you know, I recited the entire Sermon on the Mount to myself this week. And you know how long it is? It's 13 minutes and 20 seconds. 13 minutes and 20 seconds. I was thinking about preaching the whole thing to you this morning. You say, well, we didn't get any preaching. Oh, you got preaching from the greatest preacher ever lived. But I'm not going to do that. Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a helicopter view. I'm going to fly over these three chapters. We're going to look at the whole forest. And then we're going to go back and start looking over the next few weeks at the individual trees. If you don't see the whole forest, you're going to miss the trees. You're going to get blown away by, by turn the other cheek. Or if, or if someone uh, for, sues you and wants to take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. You're going to say, I can't do that. Well, you have to start at the beginning and go through. This sermon is put together perfectly by the greatest preacher who ever lived. So we're going to fly over it. I saw an IMAX movie once about uh, the space shuttle as it flew around the Earth. And it was a one-hour trip over the entire globe. Walter Cronkite was talking as we moved. And, and so you get this bird's-eye view of the entire thing. That's what I kind of like to do this morning with the Sermon on the Mount. But the Sermon on the Mount drives us to Christ. And it also shows us the pattern, God's pattern, for true happiness. Do you know that people all over the country, all over the world, are looking for happiness? What's really sad, what's really challenging is that they are seeking for it in ways that are destined to make them miserable. This is God's path to happiness. You want to know what happiness is all about? It's right here. Do you know the last Old Testament prophet was Malachi? We talked about him when we talked about John the Baptist, you remember? And Malachi is said at the very end of the, uh, of the Old Testament. Now, if you were to flip back there, just a few pages, just turn... Until you get to, oh, my Bible, I have this little page, this big white space here that says New Testament. It means New Covenant, God's new way of dealing with us. Turn back one more page. What is the last word of the Old Covenant? Curse. Oh, the last word that God has to speak to us in the Old Covenant is curse. Lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. That's God's curse on anyone who will not obey and follow the Old Covenant. What is Jesus' first word in the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew chapter 5. What is it? Blessed. Blessed. Blessed are those who are, who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the New Covenant. The Old Covenant brought threatenings. It brought Mount Sinai. It brought lightning and thunder and storm and terror. The New Covenant, under the preaching of Jesus, under the blood of Christ, is a covenant of grace, and it brings blessing. If you'll just admit that you need the blessing. If you'll just say, I'm a beggar and I need it. I want it. Please give it to me. That's what it's all about. The first verse keys, holds, holds the whole key to the whole thing. Be a spiritual ble- a beggar all the way through the three chapters. You'll understand what God's doing here. Keep saying, I can't do this. Do it in me, Jesus. That's what it's all about. That's how the Sermon on the Mount works. It's God's pattern for true happiness and success. 
It also is a, is a power and a pattern for witnessing for the church. It's a resource for witnessing, for sharing our faith. Do I think the church has problems leading people to Christ now, specifically because we're too much like the world? I really believe that our power for witnessing and transforming uh, the world comes as we make a separation between us and the world. We begin to think differently. We love different things. We have our eyes set on different goals. We're just different. And the, the further away we get from that, the stronger the pull comes on some people that God has prepared in the world to leave that and come over to the church to see what's going on. How can it possibly be that they live this kind of a life? There's a yearning, a hungering, and a thirsting that's created by people who live apart and who live differently from the world. Sermon on the Mount holds the key. Not only that, but the Sermon in the Mount penetrates people's outer crust if they would just listen to it. If they would just accept what Jesus is saying, that this really, truly is God's standard for judgment. You must be every bit as perfect morally as God is to go to heaven. And if you're trying to get there in your own righteousness, you will never make it. It's a resource for witnessing. It shows us what we must preach to people to shatter that self-reliance. I believe the greatest, as I've been reading, I love natural history, the greatest, greatest natural enemy of the king cobra is the mongoose. Do you know what a mongoose is? It's just this little thing that runs around and it uh, surrounds King Cobra and at a key moment it jumps out and breaks the King Cobra's neck. Can you believe that? I thought maybe it's immune to the cobra's uh, venom, but it's not. It just knows how to fight it. That's the mongoose. What is the greatest natural enemy to a good co uh, cotton harvest? And that's the boll weevil. Back 50 years ago, any of you know anything about cotton know about the boll weevil. The greatest natural enemy to your soul in a struggle with sin is self-righteousness. And the Sermon on the Mount shatters self-righteousness because it needs to be shattered. That's what the Sermon on the Mount does. And finally, it is the pattern for pleasing God. If you want to know how to please God, read the Sermon on the Mount. This is pleasing to God. Now, for any of you who go through this and think, I don't need to do this. This is not important. All you need to do is go to the very end, chapter 7. Jesus says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rains came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rains came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. I don't see an exemption clause in there, do you? I don't see your escape clause out there. Do you, do you find one? Oh, I don't need to do this. But you have a choice. <clears throat> this is a key moment for you. Do you know that you're hearing the Sermon on the Mount right now? You're hearing the words of Jesus. Now you're in trouble. You have a choice. You either put them into practice or you don't. If you put them into practice, you're like a wise man building his house on the rock. If you don't, it's all going to come crashing down. You're hearing the words of Jesus. You've got to put them into practice. That's what Jesus said. Now, I think as we go through this Sermon on the Mount and as we study it, we're going to see God doing transforming things at First Baptist Church. It's my hope that it could bring about a tremendous revival. I've been praying openly that God would draw us together for prayer and that there would be such a spirit of brokenness over sin, such a grief over sin, that there's an outpouring of the Spirit and a sense of the comfort that only Jesus can give. That's where the revival starts. That's when we see people getting saved. It starts with us. And it starts with us understanding these three chapters. Now, there have been faulty approaches to the Sermon on the Mount in the past. 
about a hundred years ago, one of them was very popular. It's called the social gospel. The idea there was that we could bring in the precepts of the Sermon on the Mount through our own efforts, through legislation, through reaching out to the poor. We could abolish war. The problem with that is that two things happened in the 20th century. You know what they are? World War I and World War II. And at the end of World War I and World War II, that illusion that we could bring in the kingdom through our own efforts was shattered by the depths of human depravity that we saw in those wars. Social gospel is out. Some people say that the Sermon on the Mount is just the law of Moses intensified. You take that old covenant and just kind of turn it up a few notches. That's what you get in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. But I tell you that if you're angry with your brother, you're in danger of the fire of hell. That's what Jesus says. So it's just the Sermon on the Mount turned up a bit. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that if you look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery with her in, a, in, in your heart. It's just the law of Moses intensified. The only problem with that way of looking at the Sermon on the Mount is it totally neglects the Beatitudes, the blessings that come through being poor in spirit. There is no blessing like this in the Law of Moses. The Law of Moses does not encourage us to come bankrupt to God and say, I can't do it, but that's what the Beatitudes does. The blessings that come from understanding your own spiritual emptiness. So this is not just the Law of Moses all over again. It's something different. The dispensational view is found in the Schofield Study Bible and in other places. That's the idea that basically when you're reading the Sermon on the Mount, you're reading somebody else's mail. It wasn't meant for you. It's meant for the Jews. And there are various arguments put forth, but God sent Jesus to be the king of the Jews. He meant to set up a kingdom on earth, and these were the principles that he was going to run his kingdom by. They rejected Jesus as their king, and so God had to go to plan B, and we the Gentiles are plan B. How do you feel about being plan B? <laughs> Well, that's uh, actually very faulty because God has had one salvation plan throughout all of history and he's working out that plan. Furthermore, there's not a single ethical principle that you find in the Sermon on the Mount that you will not find also in Paul's writings or in Peter's or John's. So if you throw out the Sermon on the Mount, you might as well throw out the whole New Testament. The Sermon on the Mount is meant for us. The fourth view is one that I call the shallow evangelical view. That the law, the law I mean, the Sermon on the Mount was meant to drive us to Christ and that's it. And once we come to faith in Christ, we really don't need to pay much attention anymore to the Sermon on the Mount. We know we need a Savior. We don't really need to come back and figure out what Jesus meant by these various things. That's the shallow evangelical view. When was the last time you read these three chapters and said, God, change my life. Make me live like this. I want to live like this. Well, that's what, we're, that's what Jesus Christ has come to do. And the problem with that way of looking at the Sermon on the Mount is that it neglects what Paul says in Romans 8.4. In Romans 8.4, he says, In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. What happens is, we come to the law, we come to the Sermon on the Mount, we're shattered by it. We come to Christ. We're, we're saved by faith in Christ alone, not through our own works. But when, what then does God do? He picks us up by the Spirit and moves us back to the law and says, Now live this out by the Spirit. Not to earn your salvation, but because this is the kind of life that pleases me. The shallow evangelical view will not do. This, brothers and sisters, is how Christians are expected to live. This is how Christians are enabled to live. It is how Christians are empowered to live by the Holy Spirit. This is what God wants to do in each and every one of you and in my life too. This is what Jesus bought for you when he died on the cross. Godly character that conforms to these three chapters. Don't you want it? Don't you hunger and thirst for this? I do. I want to look at myself and see these things growing. I want to see these attitudes changing from within by the power of the Spirit. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. That's what it's all about. 
Now what I'd like to do is I'd like to take you on a general overview. I've given you an outline in your, in your books there, in your, in your pamphlets. And what, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to give you a general division of how the Sermon on the Mount looks to me. And we're going to be going through this over the next period of time. But this is what you can expect when you see it. We start out with the Beatitudes and up through verse 16 in chapter 5 with what we could call norms of kingdom life. Jesus is speaking to his disciples about kingdom life. And he's telling us what the character of a Christian is going to be. If you're not a Christian, you can't live out the Sermon on the Mount. So he first draws you through the Beatitudes to show you what it means truly to be a heart Christian. If you take all these three chapters, all that Jesus says, you can sum it up into two words. Heart righteousness. Heart righteousness. A righteousness that comes from within. And that's what the Beatitudes does. It shows you what has to happen in you to produce heart righteousness. In verses 11 and 12 of chapter 5, we get the reaction of the world. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you. If you live out a life of heart righteousness, you are going to be persecuted. Guaranteed. We'll get to that more in depth when we come to it. Heart righteousness leads to persecution, a reaction. But then in verse 13 through 16, he talks about the fact that we are salt of the earth. We are light of the world. This talks about a Christian's responsibility in society. We are supposed to have an illuminating effect on society by being light of the world. We're supposed to have a preserving, purifying effect on society the way salt did on meat. You're the salt of the, salt of the earth. That's what we're supposed to be. So that's the general expectation, norms of kingdom life. Then after that, from verse 17 of chapter 5 up through the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about particulars, almost case studies of kingdom life. The rest of chapter 5, he's talking about the kingdom of God and the Old Testament. He brings you through various aspects of the Old Testament, the law of Moses. We could call this heart righteousness to neighbor because you know that the entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself, right? Heart righteous to, to neighbor is what Jesus takes us through. Not surface righteousness, something coming from the heart. Now, I've been saying heart over and over. What is the heart? I told you this on Wednesday evening, those of you who are there. Heart is that part of you which thinks, that part of you which feels, and that part of you which decides. I'll say that again. The heart is that part of you which knows, that part of you which feels, and that part of you which decides. It's who you really are inside. God wants it to be righteous. He wants you to know in a righteous way. He wants you to feel and be passionate in a righteous way. He wants you to make choices of your will according to righteousness. He wants heart righteousness. That's what the whole Sermon on the Mount is about. An internal righteousness because there is an invisible God who watches everything in your life. That's the Sermon on the Mount. And so he's going to take you through the Law of Moses. First in chapter 5, verse 17 through 20, he's going to talk about a proper view of the Law of Moses. Do not think that I have come to abolish the Law of the Prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I want to see them lived out, says Jesus. They're going to be lived out in me, fulfilling prophecy. But then they're going to be lived out in you, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Then he's going to talk about anger. You've heard that it was said, do not murder, but I say don't even be angry. Then he's going to talk about marital faithfulness. You've heard it was said, don't commit adultery. I say even more than that, don't even lust. I'm staring at your heart all the time. I see it all. And then he talks about marital commitment. You've heard that it was said this and that about divorce, but I tell you this. And he deals with divorce. He talks about oaths. He talks about the way you talk. Don't make a promise with a big oath. Just let your yes be yes and your no, no. Be a person of integrity when you speak, says Jesus. And he even drives it to the nth degree when he says that we should deal with our enemies with integrity. We should deal with our enemies as people who are poor in spirit. 
People who are broken before God aren't prideful before enemies. We know what, it, what it's like to feel like an enemy of God. We were enemies of God. So we're humble. And we're not going to strike back. When somebody hits us on the right cheek, we want to hit them back, don't we? Harder. Make sure we don't hit, they don't hit us again, right? Jesus said, turn the other cheek. The person who is able to do this is somebody who's poor in spirit. Somebody who's broken over sin and says, I know why you hit me. I understand. But God still has a love that can conquer that sin. And it all gets summed up in verse 48. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Write that one down and put it next to your computer. Write that one down and put it in your kitchen. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. If you're ever tempted to feeling self-righteous, just look at that verse. It will finish that, hopefully for good. That is God's standard. Chapter 6, he goes to the root of the matter in terms of our personal relationship with God. Heart righteousness before God. Here we talk about religion. Now, what is religion? In the 60s and 70s, there was kind of a backlash against religion. It's not a religion, it's a what? A relationship. Remember that? And so religion was kind of pushed aside. But religion is just the outward actions of your inner faith. It's the way you live out what you believe. And so here Jesus talks about the way you give money, financially, for example. Don't give it in a big showy way. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. Do it secretly so that only God can see. That's heart righteousness. A life lived out in front of an invisible God who sees all the secrets of your heart and who will judge your heart on judgment day. So don't do it for big show. Do it because I'm watching you. And when you pray, don't do it in an open, showy way. Go in and close the door and pray to your fathers unseen. I want faith. I want a, a, a people that understands that I see you all the time. I want prayers that come from the heart. That's the kind of prayer I want. And he talks about fasting. When you fast, don't make a big show of it. Do it for inner purity so that I see you. I will reward you, he says. Don't live for, don't live for treasures here on earth. Don't, don't live for esteem from other people, for pride. Don't live for financial rewards or positions or anything in this world. Live for the next world. Pass all those things on to me. I'll take care of them. Store up treasure in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy and where thieves do not break, up and break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Store up treasure, says Jesus, but don't do it here in this world. Pass it on to me and I'll take good care of it. I'll hold it fast for you. And all of that produces a freedom in this world. Freedom from anxiety. Freedom from concern about your life what you will eat and drink, and about your body, what you will wear. Your life is more important than food, and your body more important than clothes. It frees you up from those things. You're not concerned about yourself anymore. You have a Heavenly Father who's taking care of all your needs. He'll give you everything you need. You are free now to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And all of these things will be given to you as well. Freedom in this world because you live this kind of life. Don't you want it? Aren't you tired of covetousness? Aren't you tired of anxiety over material things? Sermon on the Mount holds the key. And then in chapter 7, he talks about living in view of the coming final day. And there is a day coming. It's called the day of judgment. Do not judge, said Jesus, or you will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. There's a day of judgment coming. Isn't that what the two houses is all about? What do you think the rain is? The rains came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house. That's judgment day, folks. That's when everything gets tested and we'll see how strong it is. What kind of life did we live? Did we live a life that glorified God? Did we live a life that built for eternity? Or do we live a life that just collapses on judgment day? It's, it evaporates. It has no eternal value. So all of chapter 7 is about living in view of that final assessment. A heart righteousness that prepares for that final day.
And so Jesus talks in verse 13 and 14 about two roads, one leading to heaven and the other to hell. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Be one of the few. Find that road that leads to life, says Jesus. Two roads. And he talks also about two trees. There are guides along those roads, aren't there? Guides. They're going to point the way. And they point the way, the direction you're going. There are false teachers out there, aren't there? By their fruit, you will know them. Look at the fruit of your teachers. Try to see if they really are pointing you to God, or if they're not. Two trees. And then he talks about two claims. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. That's a claim. You're my Lord, Jesus. Am I? Away from me. I never knew you. You evildoer, says Jesus. Two claims. Make sure your claim is valid. Make sure you really know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Two claims. And then finally, as we've said, two houses. Two houses. One of them stands, one of them doesn't. Everybody is building something. Everybody. Is what you're building going to last through that test, or is it not? That's what you have to ask yourself. The Sermon on the Mount points the way where the things you do will last for eternity. Go all the way back to the beginning. Blessed are the spiritual beggars, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, today I've been speaking to a mixed group. I don't know your spiritual background. I don't know if you really are born again. If you are not certain that you have given your life to Jesus Christ, come today and give your life to Him. Be a spiritual beggar. Say, I look at myself and I don't match this standard. I can't stand up on Judgment Day to this kind of standard. And I believe that this is the kind of standard that will be used on Judgment Day. I can't do it, Jesus. If you can say that honestly to your heart, from your heart, and you've never said it to Jesus before from your heart, today for you could be the day of salvation. Come forward and talk to me and I'll pray with you. And we'll talk to you about what it means to enter through the narrow gate, to walk along the road that leads to life, not to destruction. If you have given your life to Jesus Christ... I'm asking, I'm urging, I'm begging you to turn your mind back to these three chapters. Line your life up against it and say, God, make me hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Make me pure in heart. I want to see you, Jesus. And I want everything I do to last for eternity. Use these three chapters in me, Lord, to transform my life. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.